Uh, it's something that everybody deals with. You deal with it. I deal with it. Every one of you there in Williamsburg, every one of you there in Somerset, you deal with it. It's something that everybody struggles with. And there isn't a single day of your life and there isn't a single day of my life, there isn't a single day of our life when we don't feel it. There's not a single day when we don't face it. And there's not a single day that to some degree we don't fight against it in some way. At times we overcame it. And then there are times in our life when we were overwhelmed and overtaken by it. And for some of us, that was the season, that was the moment that opened the door to some of our greatest regrets, to the worst seasons of our life. And unfortunately, it is a part of life. It's an unpleasant part of life. It's an unrelenting part of life. And it's an unavoidable part of life. It's inevitable, it's inescapable. Any other word that you wanna plug in there to say that you can't detour around it, you can't pray it away, you can't worship it away, you can't outsmart it. It's always there, it's always lurking in the shadow and it's watching you and it's waiting for you and it's waiting for the right moment, it's waiting for the best moment to show itself. And of course, I'm talking about temptation. Let's all just say that out loud together. Temptation, that's it. It's unpleasant, we don't enjoy it. It's unrelenting, it just keeps coming. It just keeps chasing. It just keeps knocking at the door. It's unavoidable. There isn't a day in your life, there isn't a day in my life, there isn't a day in our life when we don't feel this, when we don't face this, when we don't have to fight against this in some way or another. Regardless of how old you are, you could be young or you could be old. It doesn't matter. It's inescapable. It's inevitable. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It's unavoidable. It doesn't matter whether you're married or whether you're single. It's unavoidable. It doesn't matter whether you're in a good marriage or a not so good marriage. It's unavoidable. It doesn't matter whether you know a lot of the Bible or you know very little of the Bible. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. Doesn't matter whether you think you're full of the Spirit of God or whether you think you're void of the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter. Temptation is just a part of your life. It's just a part of life. It doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus. Temptation is temptation for everybody. And regardless of who you are and regardless of what you believe and regardless of all the things that make you you, temptation is something that is inevitable and inescapable. Now. When we think about temptation, it's important for us to, to give a thought to what temptation is. Uh, we've all heard about temptation and, and we think we understand it, but, but we often just don't think about temptation itself. Temptation is the moment when what you want to do is in conflict with what you should do. That's temptation. It's the moment where you find yourself wanting to do what you believe you should not do. And, and this has nothing to do with being a Christian because everybody's got a list of shoulds and should nots. Uh, that's what C.S. Lewis remarked. He said, all over the world, people just seem to have this innate sense of ought or ought not. And, and so you may not be a Jesus follower, you may not be a church person, you may not consider yourself a person of faith. It really doesn't matter. This is, this is all skate. This is true for everybody. Temptation is that moment. When you wanna do this, but you know that you should really do that. Temptation is when you wanna walk that way, but you know you should walk that way. T 
Temptation is when you want to open this door, but you know that you should not open that door. That's temptation. And temptation is a moment of choice. It's a moment of choice for you. Your moment of temptation is a moment of choice. When you get a decision and I get a decision, we all get a decision. Am I going to step across that line or am I not going to step across that line? Am I going to continue to flirt with this line, dangle a foot over that line, or am I going to stay on the right side, the wise side of the line? Am I going to break the rule or am I not going to break the rule? That's temptation. It's a moment of choice because there is a choice in the moment of temptation. Temptation, this is, this is important for us to think about. Temptation happens when desire meets opportunity. We all have desire, but if there's not an opportunity to fill the desire, then there's really not that strong of a temptation. But temptation happens when desire meets opportunity. An opportunity to do the wrong thing or the unwise thing. That's temptation. It's when your desire and an opportunity meets together and you have an opportunity to do the wrong thing or the unwise thing. And in that moment, you have a choice to decide what you will or will not do. And for some people, they don't choose wisely. And for some people, they don't choose rightly in those moments. And when you choose wrongly in the moment of temptation and you decide that you're going to do what you want to do, even though you know it's not what you should do, there are serious consequences to that. Sometimes those consequences are relational. Sometimes those consequences, consequences are financial. Sometimes they're marital. Sometimes they're emotional, psychological. And of course, the consequences can be spiritual. Temptation is a serious thing. Because temptation is the moment when we consider trading what we want most in the future for what we want right now. Every single one of you have a vision of the future. Every single one of you who are married, you have a vision for what you want your marriage to look like. It's not there today, but you have a hope. You have a vision for what you believe and want that marriage to look like in the future. Those of you who are parents, you have a vision for your children's future of what you hope their life looks like. What you hope they're able to avoid or stay away from. What you hope they're able to be like and engage in. Everybody's got a vision for the future. You're single. You're not interested in marriage. You've got a vision for what your life as a single person looks like. And what temptation does, it's that moment when what you want to do is not what you should do. But in that moment, you are faced with the choice of, will I give up what I want most in the future for what I want right now? And that's why it's so serious. Because in the moment of temptation, every single one of us have the capacity to forfeit the future we want for what we just happen to want right now. You see, temptation is the thing that we all have in common. We don't have a lot in common, but the thing that we have in common is the fact that we all face temptation, we all feel it, and to some degree, we're all fighting against it. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody here in London, everybody there in Williamsburg, everybody there in Somerset, I want you to take a moment, I want you to look at the person to your right and to your left. Just, just look at them, go ahead, just, just look at them. Some of you never play along. <laughs> and that just lets me know how fun you must be at home on the weekends. <laughs> hey dad, let's play. Hey, mom, we got a new game. Look at the people around you, behind you, in front of you. And here, let me tell you something about them. Let me tell you something about them that you forget. 
Let me tell you something about them that sometimes you don't believe. Let me tell you something about them that they're not gonna walk up and tell you themselves more than likely. They're just like you. They struggle just like you. They feel temptation just like you. They face temptation just like you. And even now in this moment, in this season of their life, they are fighting against temptation just like you. Some of them have felt and faced and fought against temptation just this morning. Husbands all across our church faced it. The kids were ready, just so happened it was one Sunday in a year where actually both shoes match, socks match, all buttons are buttoned, the zippers are zipped. And everybody's in the car. The car started and there's only one person missing. Miss wife. <laughs> Miss mom. And he's done it before and he knows that it's not what he should do, but he really wants to place his hand and anoint that horn with pressure. <laughs> and he knows that he shouldn't, but he, but he wants to. And it's like this force. It's like this, this, this thing comes over him all of a sudden. Hong! And in that moment, she just appears. And she gives him that look. Like, I would like to send you on a permanent vacation to somewhere very, very hot. She gets in the car and, of course, you know, everybody's mad. She's ticked and he's ticked and he knows he's right. She doesn't give a flip if he's right or not. So they get in the car, everybody upset with each other, but everybody's going to worship Jesus. Everybody's going to celebrate the presence of God with the people of God. And then you get in the car, you know, dad's driving, husband's driving, and we're already late. And we don't want to get into that again, but we're late. And so, you know, if there's ever an allowance to break the speed limit, it's on the way to church to worship God and to celebrate Jesus. And so, you know, God doesn't care if you break the law to get there to, you know, celebrate him and worship him. And so you're driving down the road like 75 miles an hour and you come up on that freak show that drives 55 in the passing lane. And that's a whole discussion for another day because eight out of 10 times they're from Ohio. And I don't know why, but it just seems that way. But if you're from Ohio today and you're visiting, God loves you and so do we. And so then you decide that you're going to non-verbally communicate with them. And so you get your front bumper as close to their back bumper as possible because you're trying to communicate. My family loves Jesus and we're trying to get to church to worship him with the people. Well, you get out of the freaking way. And then you notice a little creek C in the back windshield. And you slow down to about 41. Because there's no way you're going to let them pull in and see you and figure out you're the jerk riding their tail on the way to church. That's life. That's Sunday. That's every day. With a whole different shade of colors in between. And we all have it in common. None of us are exempt from temptation. Your greatest temptation may not be mine. And my greatest temptation may not be yours. And we don't have to share that in common, to share the greater thing in common, which is we both have a greatest struggle. We both have a temptation that is great in our life. And then we have lesser temptations. We've got them of all shapes, sizes, and colors. We all have experienced the fact that temptation 
can sometimes be so attractive. Let's just get real today. Let's just put it out there. Temptation. Temptation sometimes, it's so attractive. It's so seductive. It's so luring. It feels, it seems irresistible. You're so attracted to it. You're so in to want to do it. You, you so want to say yes. You so want to go there. You so want to step across that line. You want to open that door. And it almost feels like you can't resist. It's so attractive. It feels irresistible. Now, you know I'm a, a bit of a geek. And I, I, I've always loved to read. And I've always loved to read strange things. Even from when I was a kid, I, I always had a fascination with Greek mythology. And, and I probably should have a counselor tell me why, but I'm not sure. And, and so I, I loved reading uh, The Odyssey by Homer. And if you ever get bored... And you want a nice little thin book to read, read The Odyssey by Homer. It's about yay thick. And, and, and it's a big book of, you know, poems. And he wrote it about 750 BC. And, and what's so amazing about this or interesting to me about this is because th this is just not a Christian thing. This is just not a religious thing. This is a, this is a human thing. And, and Homer, he, he writes a story to really highlight mankind's struggle with the attractive yet deadly, the attractive yet deadly, seemingly irresistible temptation that life sometimes throws at us. And so he writes the story of Odysseus, who was the king of Ithaca, who fought alongside of the Greeks and helped them win, you know, that famous war, the Trojan War, you know, over the people of Troy. And so after Odysseus, you know, helps, you know, contrive the plan, you know, the Trojan horse and that whole thing, you've heard of that. And, and after they win the war, uh, he begins the long, difficult journey back home to the place that he really wants to be. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be deadly. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to take him 10 years to do so. And there's going to be creatures and there's going to be gods and there's going to be traps and there's going to be all of these things that he has to face on his journey to get back to his family, which is where he wants to be. And so before he begins this long, difficult journey, he meets with the sorceress, Circe. And Circe begins to give him some advice on exactly what he needs to do and what he must do to get to the place that he ultimately wants to get to. And so she gives him all of these warnings about different creatures and, and different gods that he's going to have to face along the way. But one of the specific things and one of the most infamous things that she warns him about is the fact that he and his crew are going to have to sail by the island of the sirens. The sirens were Greek mythological figures. They were half woman and they were half bird and they were beautiful. And, you know, in some accounts they had golden hair and and in every account, they would sing in this incredibly seductive way. And they sang with these beautiful voices and played this incredibly attractive music. So much so that when sailors would sail by the island of the sirens, they found the sound of the siren to be virtually irresistible. And so they would steer their ships closer and closer and closer to the island until they, you know, basically shipwrecked on the rocks. And then... Listening to the sirens, they would disembark from the ship and they would swim into the shore and there they would be meted by, you know, met by the sirens and they would be devoured. They would be killed by the sirens. And so Cersei, she warns Odysseus, she says, if you're going to survive this, you've got a plan for this. If you're going to be able to resist what seems irresistible, you're going to have to have a plan. And so basically she gives him beeswax and says, put this in the ear of all of, of, your, of your shipmates. Make sure that all of your crew sticks this in their ears so they can't hear 
the song of the siren. And you, you need to let them, you know, tie you to the mast because you want to hear what that sound is like. And you want to gain the wisdom of what it's like to hear the irresistible, but yet resist it. So you give them wax to plug their ears and you have them tie you to the mast. And this is a picture of it. Uh, there's Odysseus and he's tied to the mast and there's his crew and they're, they're rowing as fast as possible. They can't hear the sirens, but the sirens are trying to seduce Odysseus. And he just keeps, he just keeps trying to force himself free. So much so in the story that every time he tries to get free, he tells them, tie me tighter, tie me tighter. Because he knows it's deadly, but it feels irresistible. And he's actually cutting into his skin because he's trying to embrace that deadly yet seemingly irresistible call of the siren. And eventually, they're able to resist what was irresistible. And it's a story that highlights that if you, that if you and I are going to resist what is irresistible, you may have to take drastic action. You may have to have a plan. Because there are times when temptation is so intense, when it's so powerful, it seems irresistible. And though Homer and what he wrote about was myth, it is absolutely grounded in reality. Your reality, my reality. There are moments when our desire for pleasure surpasses our concern for the pain that our pursuit of pleasure may cause. Because temptation it, it, it knocks at the door of your appetite. It knocks at the door of your greatest desires. And we all have appetites and we all have desires. God has given us natural desires. God has given us natural appetites. And when temptation comes, it will try to solicit you based on your appetite, based on your desire. It will try to get you to pursue self-interest at the expense of other people. That's temptation. It's temptation as you've experienced, it's temptation as I've experienced. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who he is, you should know who he is. He was, a German, he was a German pastor and he led the resistance against Adolf Hitler and there was actually a plot to assassinate Hitler and it's discussed in ethics classes uh, in Christian circles and theology all the time and it's a fascinating guy to read after. But, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts words to the temptation that we've all experienced. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over us. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled and the flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, love of fame, power, greed for money, or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world. Listen to this. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us and we seek all of our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God. This, this is worth your trip right here to church. Satan does not fill us with a hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It's almost like we lose our free will. In those moments of greatest temptation, it's almost like you lose the ability to say no. It is here that everything within me rises up against God. 
He says in the moments of our temptation, it's not that we don't love God. It's not that we hate God. It's not that we all of a sudden consider God the enemy. No, it's that we in some way forget God. God seems distant. God seems irrelevant. God just, God's just not part of our thought in that moment. No person has ever escaped temptation. Not you, not me, and not even Jesus. You see, some folks grew up with a version of Jesus that they just didn't feel like they could relate to. Some people grew up with a version of Jesus where they didn't believe that Jesus could relate to them. Some have the idea that Jesus is so different from us that Jesus in no way can understand us. Some of us, we grew up with this idea of Jesus that Jesus is so good, he doesn't understand those of us who struggle with being bad all the time. That Jesus is so righteous, how in the world could he understand someone who's so unrighteous like me? Men grew up, became adults, and they thought to themselves, I can't relate to Jesus. I can't relate to somebody who got it right all the time. And I am sure that he doesn't know what it's like to be me. He doesn't know what, it like, what it's like to feel like me, to want what I want, to desire what I want, to have that feeling down there deep that I've got to quench this thirst. I've got to fill this hunger. And there's a separation that begins to occur. We drift away from Jesus because we think that Jesus doesn't relate to us and we feel like we can't relate to him. And all of a sudden we're trying to do life alone and all of a sudden we're trying to face temptation alone and all of a sudden we're trying to fight temptation alone and we don't talk to God about it. We don't talk to our savior about it because in our mind and in the way that we see the world, we just don't think that he understands. How can he relate? Who do we feel camaraderie with? Who do we experience community with? Who do we bond with? It's the people that we feel like they're in the same boat with us. They know what it's like to be me. They know what it's like to be where I'm at, to do what I've done. They know. And so many people, they grew up with a version of Jesus. They just don't believe that Jesus understands. They just don't believe that Jesus is in the same boat. And so we drift because we believe that he's so much better than us. He has no capacity to relate to us. But the Gospels tell a different story. The Gospels present to us a Jesus that does understand what it's like to be you, that does understand what it's like to be where you're at, to face what you face, to feel what you feel, to fight against what you may be fighting against. Last week, we kicked off this series that Jesus was presented to the world by his cousin, John, when he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was introduced as God's sacrifice for sin to declare that God loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. He came to take away your sin, not to throw your sin up in your face. He didn't come to condemn you for your sin, but to save you from your sin. And so after John presented Jesus to the world, Jesus was baptized. And the moment after Jesus was baptized, there was a voice heard from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, whom I'm well pleased with. Jesus was announced by John and endorsed by the father. And then the narrative of Matthew chapter three flows right into the narrative of Matthew chapter four. And Matthew chapter four begins with this. Then, right after Jesus was announced by John, right after Jesus was endorsed by the Father, Matthew connects what was said with what is happening currently. And so it goes, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. This is fascinating. There's so many questions about this. There's, this is so layered. This is so deep. If you're looking to get to the bottom of this today, you're gonna have to hire somebody else because I, I just, I just, I'm not that smart and I can't do that. There's so much that we could talk about. 
Jesus, then Jesus, right after his baptism, right after this great moment where he's introduced to the populace, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, lots of observations that I don't have time to unpack, but just I'll point them out to you. First observation being that being in the presence of God does not seem to be incompatible with being in the presence of temptation and in the presence of the devil. We have lots of questions about that. We would like to have a little bit more explanation about that, but being in the presence of God, Jesus was led by the Spirit to the place of temptation. Jesus was led by the Spirit to the place of temptation. And being led by the Spirit in no way is incompatible with experiencing temptation and being in the presence of the enemy. Another observation is this, that after Jesus was presented publicly, Jesus was tested privately. After his great moment of victory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right after a public victory, he has a public, he has rather a private struggle, a private testing. And you've experienced the same thing. That the moment that you had progress, the moment that you did something great, the moment that you followed through, you obeyed, you really believed that you were living in the will of God, you had a moment, you, you were shining bright, you were at the top of your game, and then all of a sudden, the most difficult test that you ever faced knocked on your door. The greatest temptation that you've ever known, it knocked at your door. Because sometimes our best moments are followed by our hardest moments of testing and temptation. It was true of Elijah. It was true of Noah. It was true of David. Men and women throughout history, after their great moments of victory, they had a great moment of testing. The same was true for Jesus. The same will be true for you. The same will be true for us. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and this is the most obvious verse in all the New Testament, he was hungry. It's like, okay, Matthew, thanks for telling us that. We, we could have figured that out. But here's the thing. Temptations appeal to our greatest appetite at the moment of our greatest weakness. And when our greatest appetite meets the moment of our greatest weakness, we are at risk. When the moment of your greatest appetite meets the moment of your greatest weakness, you are at risk. In this moment, Jesus is at risk. He's vulnerable, he's physically weak, and this is when the enemy says, I'm moving in. His appetite is great and his weakness is great, I'm moving in. And that's what the New Testament leads us to believe about our enemy, called Satan, the devil, Diabolos, the accuser. He goes by many, many names in the New Testament. But the New Testament says that your enemy and my enemy, he is a stalker. He is like a hunting lion. And he's laying wait in the bushes. And he's watching you. And he's waiting for you. And he's looking for an easy kill. Now, I don't think that Christians, I don't think the followers of Jesus should live in fear, but I do think that it should give us pause to consider that you have an enemy and I have an enemy. And this enemy, he's watching and he's waiting. And this enemy, he's lurking in the shadows of your marriage. He's lurking in the shadows of your finances. He's lurking in the shadows of your relationship. He's lurking in the shadows of the corners of your life. And he's watching and he's waiting for the moment for an easy kill of when the greatest appetite you have meets the greatest moment of weakness that you have. So there's lots of things that we can learn. One being that we should all pay attention to the when, where, who, and how of temptation in our life. Jesus is in the wilderness. 
Jesus is weak. There's all kinds of circumstances around this temptation. But when it comes to you, pay attention to the when, the where, the who, and the how of temptation in your life. Pay attention to the when. Does it happen when you're frustrated? When you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're angry, when you're worried, when you drink too much? When does it happen? Because you know when it happens. You know when that moment of great temptation knocks at your door. You know when it happens. Pay attention to that. Learn from that. Develop a plan based on that. Where does it happen? Is it when you go on business trips alone? Is it when you travel alone? Is it downstairs early in the morning when you're by yourself? Is it late at night in the living room when everybody else has gone to bed? Is it at the club? Is it at the bar? Is it her house? Is it at his house? Is it at work? Where does it happen at? Where, where is it at that temptation knocks on your door? Pay attention to that. Who's there? Who's involved? Are there familiar faces? Are there reoccurring faces? When temptation knocks at your door, how does it happen? Is it with a phone? Is it with a computer? Is it a motel? How does it go down? You know these things. Pay attention to those things and learn from those things. Begin to build a plan around those things. It says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, and again, we could talk about all kinds of things. The temptation often centers around identity, who you are, who you think you are, who you want to be, the label that you've assigned to your life, how you identify yourself, that it's all about identity. And we could talk about that, but he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, I remember reading this passage as a kid and hearing you know, Sunday school lessons and sermons, and I would always sit there where you're sitting and I would think to myself, what's so bad about that? Well, you know, John chapter two, he turns water to wine. Later on, he takes some fish and he takes some bread and he feeds thousands of people. What's so bad about taking stones and making them bread when he's hungry? He's not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. Doesn't seem like a big thing until we learn what's actually going on and then it's a huge thing. Satan is tempting Jesus, don't forget this, to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. He's legitimately hungry. This is a desire that God has placed in him as a human being. This is a legitimate need, but Satan is tempting him to satisfy, to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And the question that Satan is really asking Jesus in this temptation is, can you trust God with your need? Can you trust God with this appetite? Can you trust God in this place where you lack satisfaction? Can you trust God to meet your need? Can you trust that God knows about your need, cares about your need, can meet your need? Instead of you trying to turn these stones into bread because you can, just because it's a legitimate need, doesn't mean that you should fulfill it in an illegitimate way. Can you trust that God knows you, cares about you, can meet your need, that he has a plan with your interest and your good in mind, that his plan for you is good? Can you trust that? That's what Satan is whispering. That's what this temptation is all about. Jesus, can you trust your father to meet this need? Because you can meet it yourself. You can turn these stones to bread. And this is the question that we all face in moments of temptation. When your appetite surfaces, when your greatest weakness meets your greatest appetite, the enemy will whisper to you, why don't you just turn these stones to bread? Why don't you just meet this need? You can. They've asked you to. They've invited you over. You've got the request. You know how to fix it. Can you trust that God is good? Can you trust that God knows what you need? Can you trust that God cares about your appetite? 
Can you believe, can you trust that God can meet that need instead of you trying to meet that legitimate need in an illegitimate way? Can you trust that God's plan for you is good? All of us have desires. All of us have appetites. They're God-given. Sin broke them. And temptation wants to leverage the brokenness of our desires and our appetites. We all have legitimate desires. But the temptation is to fulfill it, to meet it in an illegitimate way. Now, in this moment, Jesus flashes back to something that happened 14 years, 1400 years before. And once we understand what's going on here, we know that this is what's happening in this temptation. Jesus thinks back to when God rescued Israel out of Egypt from bondage. And it's a long story, but it's a great story, but I don't have time to tell you the story. They're they're gonna begin a a 40 year journey to the promised land. And, And this story is so full of shadows and so full of fingers that's pointing back. Jesus, he's in the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. 1400 years before, Israel was in the wilderness. And they're gonna be there for 40 years. And so Jesus thinks back to that moment when Israel's in the wilderness and and God decided that he was gonna teach them a lesson. God decided that he was gonna teach them a lesson on trusting him. And so they had no food. And so he says, I'm going to give you food from heaven. I'm going to give you man. I'm going to give you man in the morning. I'm going to give you man in the evening. And you can't store it. You can only eat what you're given today. Jesus remembers back to a time when God was literally giving his people their daily bread. He was teaching them not to trust me tomorrow, but trust me today. Trust me right now in this moment with this appetite with this need in your life. Don't worry about yesterday. I'm teaching you to trust me today. I want you to believe that I can meet your need. I want you to believe that I can satisfy your desire. You don't have to turn the stones to bread. You don't have to go out and take a legitimate need and try to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. Trust me, I know I care, I can. And so at the end of 40 years, Moses looks back on this and this is what he says to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you. Okay, so this was, there was a point to this. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you. God humbled you, causing you to hunger. Then he fed you with manna. This is so good. This, this, is, this, this is so good. There are moments when God will create a need in your life that only he can satisfy. God will create a desire, an appetite, a need, a hunger, a thirst in your heart, in your soul, in your mind that only he can feel. He brought them to the place of hunger so he could meet their need. He brought them to the place where their greatest appetite met their moment of greatest weakness so that he could step in and they would learn to trust him in those moments and not to trust themselves. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We've heard those words before. Jesus is about to quote that very verse because God wanted to teach these people, I can satisfy your appetite. Your wife may not be satisfying your appetite. Your husband may not be satisfying that appetite. Your job may not be satisfying that appetite. Your current standard of living may not be satisfying your appetite, your desire, your hunger. But I want you to trust me, God says. Don't you go try to turn those stones to bread just because you can. 
Yeah, you've got options. Yeah, you think you can fix it. But I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Even though it seems like it's not gonna get better, it's not gonna change, I want you to trust me. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus decided he was gonna trust the Father. He quotes that verse. Jesus answered and said, it is written, man, should I live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Satan, I'm gonna trust my Father to meet my need. I'm gonna trust my Father to satisfy this appetite. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And this, 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 is, this is entertaining. Now Satan's quoting verses. Jesus quotes one, Satan says, okay, if we're gonna play by that game, let me quote one. By the way, even the devil quotes scripture. By the way, you can find a verse to justify anything you wanna do in your life. By the way, you can find a theology that will suit the way you want to live your life. Jesus, if you want people to believe in you, if you want people to follow you, then here's what you need to do. Just jump off this temple, manufacture, listen to this, manufacture a situation where God has to move. Manufacture a situation where God has to intervene. Force God's hand. And this is the temptation of presuming upon God. And church people and Christians love to do this all the time. I I'm gonna do what I do to force God's hand. I'm gonna do what I do because I believe that I know how God's gonna respond. I'm gonna do this because I know what God will do. We presume upon God's grace and we say, you know what, I wanna do it even though I know I shouldn't do it. It's the wrong thing, but I'm gonna do it because I know that God will forgive me. That's the temptation of presuming upon God. I know that I shouldn't. I know that it's not right, but I also know that God is gracious. He's long suffering, he's gentle, he's good, he's kind. I know that he'll forgive me, so I'm just gonna go ahead and do what I know I shouldn't do because I know that he'll forgive me. That's the temptation and the sin of presuming upon God. I'm gonna presume on God's goodness. I know it's not right, but there's that verse, Romans 8, something, something, 20, 27, 28, God can take bad and he can turn it for good. And because I know that God can take bad and turn it for good, I'll do this bad thing. And I know it's not gonna be that bad because eventually God's gonna turn it for good. I'm gonna presume upon God's providence and I know that the steps of every man is ordered by the Lord and certainly the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and if God's in control of everything, if he's sovereign, if he's providential, even if I do this, this must in some way be part of God's master plan and so God's gonna use this inside of his plan to bring good and to bring glory so I don't really have to worry about my behavior, I don't have to take responsibility. That's presuming upon the providence of God. I'm gonna presume upon the provision of God. I'm gonna behave financially irresponsible. I'm gonna waste my money on things I shouldn't waste my money on. And then I'm gonna claim a verse and say, God, you're the great provider. You're Jehovah Jireh. I'll, I'm expecting you, God, to provide for me even though I've been financially irresponsible. That's presuming upon the provision of God. And here's another one. I'm gonna presume upon the healing power of God. I'm not gonna watch my glucose. I'm not gonna watch my cholesterol. I'm not gonna eat right. I'm not gonna do what the doctor told me to do because I believe in a God who can heal me. I believe in a God who can touch my body. I believe in a God who can take everything that I'm gonna keep on going to McDonald's, I'm gonna order the Big Mac, I'm gonna order the fries, I'm gonna supersize it, but I'm gonna be a good steward, I'm gonna order a Diet Coke. <laughs> I'm gonna even it out. That's the temptation. Jesus, jump off this temple. 
Force God's hand. He's not going to let you die. He's not going to let this end like that. Force his hand. Manipulate him. That's the temptation. It's the person who is driving down the road with a car load full of people. And as soon as they get into Laurel County or as soon as they get into Whitley County or as soon as they get into Pulaski County, they're driving, you know, they're driving 92 and a 70. And somebody says, you're going to get a ticket. There's a speed trap here all the time. Oh, don't worry about that. I know somebody down at the courthouse, brother. <laughs> I'll tell you, Clark's my friend. He's my buddy. I can cross this line and not have to pay for it. That's the temptation of presuming upon God that leads to the sin of presuming upon God. Jesus answered and said, it is also written, do not put the Lord God to the test. Don't think you can force God's hand. Don't think you can backdoor God. Don't think that you can play gotcha with God. Don't think that you can catch God and outsmart God and say, I'm going to do it even though I shouldn't because God will forgive me or I'm going to do the bad thing even though I know God's going to bring good. Don't do that. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Satan says, Jesus, if you'll for just a moment set aside everything you cherish, everything you believe to be true, everything you love, everything that's been most important to you, if you'll just set it aside for just a moment, for just a moment, and bow your knee for just a moment, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of this world. And here's the thing. Jesus had come to win the kingdoms of this world. Jesus had shown up into a world that after sin entered into the garden, the world had come under the dominion of the kingdom of darkness and the God of this world. Jesus didn't argue with Satan that it wasn't his to give. But here's the thing. Jesus had come back to win the world. Jesus had come into the world to win the world by way of the cross. And here's what Satan is doing. He's offering him a shortcut. I'll give you everything you came for anyway, but I'll give it to you if you just, if you just bow the knee. Just one concession. Just one moment. I'm going to give you a crown without a cross. Because that's what you came to do, right? You came to die and suffer and bleed. and You know what's ahead of you, but I'm going to give you all that you want. But you don't have to go by the way of the cross. I'm going to give you a crown without a cross. I'm going to give you pleasure without any of that pain. Without any of that disappointment, that betrayal that you've got coming your way. I'm going to give you an easy way. Just, all you got to do is set all that aside for just a moment. Just one concession, just one compromise. And in this moment, the destiny of Jesus is at stake. And in those moments when you face the same temptation and the enemy whispers to you, just set it all aside for just a moment. You can have a better life. You, it can be different. You don't have to go through what you're going through. You don't have to feel like you feel. You don't have to lack what you're lacking. There's a way for you to get what you want. All you got to do is just set aside. Just for a moment and cross the line. Just set it aside for just a moment and bow your knee. That's all you got to do. And you can have it the easy way. You don't have to deal with this marriage anymore. You don't have to deal with these people anymore. You don't have to deal with this job anymore. You don't have to deal with this anymore. Just set it aside. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
I'm not gonna do it because I want unbroken fellowship with my father more than I want what I want. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And Jesus emerges from the wilderness temptation. Having faced sin and remaining sinless. He emerges from the wilderness temptation as a qualified savior to take your sin and mine. Though he had no sin. So that we could be the righteousness of God. He would die in our place so that we could live in his. So many things. Let me give you a couple things to think about as we get ready to go. In the moment of temptation, you never know what may be hanging in the balance. And there on the sandy plains of the Judean wilderness, let me tell you what hung in the balance. Jesus' character. And because Jesus' character was at stake, your salvation was at stake. My salvation was at stake. All of human history hung in the balance in that moment. In the moment of your temptation, you will never know what hangs in the balance. That's just the way it goes. You never know what's hanging in the balance. It could be your family. It could be your marriage. It could be the future well-being of your children. It could be your future financial stability. It could be your psychological, your emotional well-being. It could be your physical health. It could be your destiny. You never know what's hanging in the balance of that moment of temptation. Here's another thing. For those of you who may be here and say, you know what, I feel like you're talking to people who, who are facing temptation, but I feel like I've already faced it and I gave into it. Let me say something to you. If you've given into temptation, it's never too late to walk away from sin. If you've already jumped off, if you've already crossed over, it's never too late to walk away from sin. The Father's arms are open, there's grace, there's love, there's forgiveness, it's full, it's free. So come on back. But for those of us who are facing it in the middle of it, there is a path that leads us into temptation. And there is a path that leads us out of temptation. Pay attention to the when, the what, the who, and the how of temptation in your life. And develop a plan and follow the path away. Jesus said, take drastic action. Like Odysseus, tied to the mast. If your right arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, plug it out. For some of you, that means you don't need a smartphone. You don't need a computer. You don't need to travel alone. That means some of you, you need a counselor to deal with the anger. You need to rest more. You need to eat better. And in the moment of your temptation, you need to look for the escape. Because scripture says that what temptation tempts you, it is common, it is out there. People have been there, they'll be there again. But there's always a moment, there's always an avenue, always a path of escape. Follow that path. And here's the encouragement. Every time you walk away from temptation, you are following Jesus. And Jesus knows what it's like to feel it, to face it, to fight against it. Therefore, it was necessary for him 
to be made in every respect like us. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest before God, then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. And therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, without fear, without condemnation, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need because Jesus knows what it's like to be us. In the moment of our greatest temptation, he is able to help us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak. I believe he already has, I believe he is. To speak into your heart and to mine, to let this find a place that it needs to land. If you're here today and you've already given into temptation, come on back home. It's never too late to walk away from sin. If you're here and you're in the midst of temptation, if you're here and you're in some of the, the greatest temptations of your life, follow the path out. Look for the way of escape. You don't know what hangs in the balance. The temptation that you feel, Jesus knows. That desire, that hunger, that need, he's asking you to trust him with it. That he can satisfy that need. He can satisfy that hunger, that desire. And he wants you to trust him right now. In a moment of honesty, maybe you're here, maybe you're in London, Somerset or Williamsburg and you would say, Trevor, I'm in a season of great temptation. I'm just gonna slip up my hand and I just wanna say, would you pray for me? Anybody, just slip it up and say, I'm, I'm in it. There's someone, there's another, there's another and another. Anybody else, just a moment, there's another. All over the room, there's another. You have a savior who knows what it's like to be you. To know the pull, the feel, the tug, to know what irresistible feels like yet resisted. He's given you the spirit of God the spirit that raised God's son from the dead, you are more than a conqueror through Christ. You have the capacity to say no. You have the capacity to walk away. You have the capacity to say yes. In just a moment, we're gonna to sing together and we're gonna declare this song as our prayer. And if you're here and you wanna pray, with a pastor, or you just wanna pray and you wanna ask God for help, he's inviting you to himself because at the right hand of God, we have a high priest who knows what it's like to be us. Father, speak in this moment. Let's all stand together at all of our churches. Let's sing these words as a prayer. If you need to respond to pray alone or to pray with someone, some of our pastors are here. He's able to help right in the time of need. Father, speak in this moment, move in Jesus' name.